I mean, why doesn't she just give the necklace to Bill Paxton at the end? If you're going to just throw it into the ocean. Yeah, I mean, she definitely should. It's such a dick move. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. As you just uh, probably guessed from that <laughs> exchange, listener, uh, we are still talking Titanic this week. Mm-hmm. Having covered the building of the great ship the hubris behind it the marketing uh and finally last week it's uh horrible uh final fate and sinking in the north atlantic uh so caroline i guess the question i have is what are we still doing here what what, what is there left to cover uh in the titanic story well, as you mentioned, last week we discussed the infamous night to remember when the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank off the coast of Newfoundland in the early morning hours of April 15th, 1912. Now, if you've, you've listened, and I hope you have if you're three episodes deep into our series. Yeah, if you're just launching, <laughs> this is your first episode of Ain't It Scary, jump back two episodes probably. <laughs> At least, but- yeah. Um but if, you, if you've been listening, you know it's a pretty devastating story. It's full of small acts of heroism and wild acts of desperation. Not that many acts of heroism. But enough, showing both the best and the worst of humanity all in one three-ish hour period. Today, we'll be discussing what happened after the immediate aftermath of the Titanic disaster, the inquiry into who was at fault for the loss of massive property and, you know, 1,500 lives, the eventual discovering of the Titanic wreck in the 1980s after being lost for decades, and of course, the remaining mysteries and conspiracy theories surrounding the story of the Titanic right through to today. Now, I do want to begin with an example extended bit of writing from Walter Lord in his book, A Night to Remember, which I used extensively last week for references, and which is still known as the definitive account of the sinking, including witness testimony. So Lord wrote, quote, Never again would men fling a ship into an ice field, heedless of warnings, putting their whole trust in a few thousand tons of steel and rivets. From now on, Atlantic liners took ice messages seriously, steered clear, or slowed down. Nobody believed in the unsinkable ship. I still wonder if if the ice, like, why, why did the ice messages exist in the first place if they weren't being taken seriously? But, okay. Nor would icebergs any longer prowl the seas untended. After the Titanic sank, the American and British governments established the International Ice Patrol, and today Coast Guard cutters shepherd errant icebergs that drift towards the steamer lanes. The winter lane itself was shifted further south as an extra precaution, and there were no no more liners with only part-time wireless. Henceforth, every passenger ship had a 24-hour radio watch. Never again would the world fall apart while, while a Cyril Evans lay sleeping off duty only 10 miles away. Uh, to be fair, these were his off hours. And to be fair, no one went to wake him up. I'm sure he would have gone and done his job if someone had told him it needed to be done. It was also the last time a liner put to sea without enough lifeboats. And never again would first class have it so good. In fact, almost immediately, the pendulum swung the other way. 
Within days, Ismay was pilloried. Within a year, a prominent survivor divorced her husband merely because, according to gossip, he happened to be saved. One of the more... Wait, wait did she also like yes, survive it? Yes, but because he was saved and it was seen as like a cowardly thing for men to have survived, she divorced him. Yeah, but in the moment, I'm sure she wasn't like, don't get on the boat, Howard. They were different boats. But still, it's, I mean, aren't you just glad that he's alive? What are you doing? Um, one of the more trying legacies left by those on the Titanic has been a new standard of conduct for measuring the behavior of prominent people under stress. Overriding everything else, the Titanic also marked the end of a general feeling of confidence. Until then, men felt they had the answer to a steady, orderly, civilized life. For a hundred years, the Western world had been at peace. For a hundred years, technology had steadily improved. For a hundred years, the benefits of peace and industry seemed to be filtering satisfactorily through society. Except for all that Napoleon business, I guess. And the Civil War, but whatever. I think it's just an overall thing, maybe. For a hundred years, the world's been at peace. I don't know. Okay. You know. In retrospect, there may seem to be fewer grounds for confidence, like we just mentioned, but at the time, most articulate people felt life was all right. The Titanic woke them up. Never again would they be quite so sure of themselves. In technology especially, the disaster was a terrible blow. Here was the unsinkable ship, perhaps man's greatest engineering achievement, going down the first time it sailed. But it went beyond that. If this supreme achievement was so terribly fragile, what about everything else? If wealth meant so little on this cold April night, did it mean so much the rest of the year? Scores of ministers preached that the Titanic was a heaven-sent lesson to awaken people from their complacency, to punish them for top-heavy faith in material progress. Yeah, it's like if Steve Jobs had walked out on that stage with the iPhone and then it just literally <laughs> blew up in his face. Mm-hmm. If it was a lesson, it worked. People have never been sure of anything since. Except new technology, actually. Well, yeah. But then, you know, sometimes you get the Zune or whatever. Things fail. I think uh, Lord pretty nicely sums up the feeling right after the sinking, and it's kind of still prevailed to this day. The Titanic disaster changed everything about maritime travel, just like the tragedy of 9-11 continues to impact air travel, even 20 years later. In both cases, it took devastating circumstances for the invisible problems and safety to be rectified. Now, in the immediate aftermath of the sinking, news was pretty unclear, um, while those on the Carpathia, which if you remember, that's Titanic's rescue ship, attempted to clarify what had happened to the passengers that they had pulled from the North Atlantic just before dawn. However, the Carpathia relied on the same primitive wireless system that had been so integral in the Titanic disaster. Wait, you mean uh, <laughs> the wireless operators just took long breaks? Because well, that, that seemed to be the problem. The system itself, yeah. Um, so the initial reports from on board to those on land were kind of confusing. At first, on the morning of April 15th, some in the American press reported that the Titanic hadn't actually sunk at all, but rather was being towed to port by the SS Virginian. Oh, I love that. And I'm sure that features in current conspiracy theories. Yeah. It was only later that day that confirmation came that in fact the Titanic had sunk and most of the passengers and crew had been killed in the disaster. The reports of the sinking are still famous to this day. 
Titanic disaster, great loss of life, read one headline in a photo of London newsboy Ned Parfit holding up the story in the evening news on April 16th. The Titanic is sunk with great loss of life, reads another headline from The Guardian on April 16th with a story that you can still access in the online archive. Uh, And this is from April 16th, 1912, quote, The maiden voyage of the White Star Liner Titanic, the largest ship ever launched, has ended in disaster. The Titanic started her trip from Southampton for New York on Wednesday. Late on Sunday night, she struck an iceberg off the Great Banks of Newfoundland. By wireless telegraphy? Telegraphy. Telegraphy. She sent out signals of distress and several liners were near enough to catch and respond to the call. Conflicting news, alarming and reassuring, was current yesterday. Even after midnight, it was said all the passengers were safe. All reports, of course, depended on wireless telegrams over great distances. Late last night, the White Star officials in New York announced that a message had been received stating that the Titanic sank at 2.20 yesterday morning after all her passengers and crew had been transferred to another vessel. Not quite. Not quite. Later, they admitted that many lives had been lost. An unofficial message from Cape Race, Newfoundland, stated that only 675 have been saved out of the 2,200 to 2,400 persons on board. This was in some degree confirmed later by White Star officials in Liverpool, who said they were afraid the report was likely to prove true. Oh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid so. <laughs> I'm the funny oh, one. Gonna, oh, I think it will be true. <laughs> oh, my son plays the drums he does. <laughs> Ringo Starr's dad? Assuming that only 675 of the passengers and crew have been saved and taking the smallest estimate of the number of people on board, the disaster is one of the most awful in the history of navigation for at least 1,500 lives have been lost. So this is kind of the vibe in the immediate days after, just confusion and horror. And this is pretty representative of how the news is being received in the general public. Crowds began to swarm the White Star Line's offices in London, New York, Montreal, Southampton, Liverpool, and Belfast, with many demanding to know what had happened to their loved ones who had been traveling on the maiden voyage. Four out of every five members of the crew had come from Belfast alone, so the city was particularly hard hit by the terrible news, especially considering most of the crew didn't survive. Southampton, too, was devastated with 699 crew members and many passengers having hailed from the area, with 549 Southampton residents perishing alone. Crowds of weeping women, wives, sisters, mothers of the crew gathered outside of the White Star offices in the city for news. So it just sounds absolutely devastating. Uh, And the crew survived at a lower rate than third class right they were like yes they were the lowest percent something oh no they only like something like 22 percent of the crew survived something like 25 percent of third class so they were the lowest as the guardian wrote the white star line was scrambling to deal with how to spin the disaster and what news to release versus what would make them look even worse if that was even possible Public outrage kept on increasing, with the obvious questions being demanded of the line. Why were there so few lifeboats? Why had Ismay saved his own life when so many others died? Why did Titanic proceed into the ice field at full speed? You know, the obvious questions. Yeah, now, 
I, I, to Ismay's, I mean, not credit, but I guess in his defense, sor- in his defense, uh, it sounds like he sort of just like looked around and a boat was about to be lowered and he was like, I, I guess I'll sit here. Yeah. And I'll reiterate that um, Ismay from from all witness testimony that were with him at the time, he acted pretty heroically on the ship after the the accident happened he helped get people in lifeboats he helped coordinate things and it was only once his boat the the one that he was helping with was leaving uh, and no one else was around that he was like well i'm not gonna just let myself die just because i think i mean it's 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 crazy to require that someone like him go down with a ship now, in the movie, they have him... Oh, they make him a real pussy in the movie. Well, well but the, isn't he also the one who's going like, no, get all the stacks going. No, we should be going faster. Yes, and he didn't actually do that. But we'll we'll get to how he may have influenced the speed situation. But yeah, the response to Ismay is ridiculous and, and really, really all wrapped up in like chivalry and, and men versus women at the time. Women and children first. Yeah, all that stuff. Unfortunately for White Star, and as we explored in the first two episodes of this series, the answers to these questions weren't very validating. Even while still on board the Carpathia waiting to finally dock in New York, some survivors wrote a public letter to the Times urging changes to maritime safety laws determined to, quote, awaken public opinion to safeguard ocean travel in the future. Yeah, and they were closing shuffleboard at like five (laughs) o'clock. Fucked up. The Carpathia would reach New York three days after leaving the scene of the disaster, slowed by ice, fog, thunderstorms, and rough seas making for what I'm sure was a very traumatic journey for the survivors. She would dock at 9.30 p.m. on April 18th at Pier 54 in New York. So that classic scene of Rose, uh, you know, in the rain, seeing the Statue of Liberty as the, the ship pulls in. Is that when she, uh, she like, hides her face from Billy Zane? Yes, yes. Rose Dawson. And she was uh, greeted by some 40,000 people waiting for the disembarking in the heavy rain. Clothing and transportation to local shelters was provided by the Women's Relief Committee, the Travelers Aid Society of New York, the Council of Jewish Women, and other charitable organizations. Those who were able to left for relatives' homes with the Pennsylvania Railroad offering a special train free of charge to take survivors to Philadelphia. The 214 surviving... Yeah, but you have to go to Philadelphia. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, take what you can get. The 214 uh, surviving Titanic crew members were taken to the Red Star Line's steamer SS Lapland and accommodated in passenger cabins, while the crew of the Carpathia were given a bonus of a month's wages by the Cunard Line as a reward for their actions. And some Titanic passengers contributed an additional bonus of nearly 900 pounds, which is 95,000 pounds today, to be divided among the surviving crew members of the Titanic. The first formal responses to the disaster came from insurance, lawsuits, and survivor aid initiatives, which is pretty predictable. The Titanic hull equipment had been insured along with its sister ship, the Olympic, by Lloyds of London and London Marine Insurance in January of 1912. Lloyds of London sounds like a tailor. Are we sure the right guys are doing this job? L- no, they are. They're still around. They were like the guys for insurance, and I think they still are. 
Um, the total coverage was one million pounds per ship, which would be 102 million pounds today. The policy was to be free from all uh, sins and protected from all anxieties <laughs> as we wait in joyful hope for the what? Free from all average under uh, 150,000 pounds, which means that the insurers would only pay for damage in excess of the sum of 150,000 pounds. And Lloyd's paid the White Star Line the full sum owed to them within 30 days. So snip snap. Charities and other organizations were set up to assist survivors and victims' families, many of whom had lost their sole wage earner because so many of the deceased were male. And those, obviously, were mostly the wage earners back in the day. In the case of third-class survivors, many of them lost everything they owned, as so many of them were traveling to America on the voyage to begin their lives anew with the promise of the American dream. In New York City, a joint committee of the uh, American Red Cross and Charity Organization Society formed to disperse financial aid to survivors and dependents of those who died. Opera stars Enrico Caruso and Mary Garden and members of the Metropolitan Opera raised $12,000, which is close to $300,000 today, in benefits for victims of the disaster on April 29th. Uh, they gave some special concerts in which versions of Autumn and Near My God to Thee, which might have been some of the last songs played on the Titanic, were part of the program. In Britain, relief funds were organized for the families of Titanic's lost crew members, raising nearly 450,000 pounds, which would be 47 million today. And one of these funds was even still in operation as late as the 1960s. Because people, people be living long, I guess. Yeah, a young, young crewmen could still have kids and mm -hmm. wives, 100%. Mm-hmm. In America and Britain, over 60 survivors joined forces to sue the White Star Line in American fashion for damages connected to both loss of life and property, with the claims totaling almost $17 million in the Times money, which would be about $419 million in 2018 dollars. Wow, did this uh, shutter White Star Line? Well... This total was far in excess of what White Star argued it was responsible for as a limited liability company, a.k.a. an LLC. Um, basically, American law, typical corporate bullshit. <laughs> because the bulk of the litigants were in the United States, White Star petitioned the United States Supreme Court in 1914, which ruled in its favor that it qualified as an LLC and found that the causes of the ship's sinking were largely unforeseeable rather than due to negligence. So, typical Supreme Court bullshit. Uh, the sinking, yes, but I would argue not the loss of life. I would argue that too, yeah. This ruling distinctly limited the scope of damages survivors and family mem members were entitled to, forcing them to reduce their claims to some $2.5 million. White Star only settled for about $664,000, um, which would be around $16.5 million in 2018. And that was only about 27% of the original sum sought by survivors. But again, typical legal business. The settlement was agreed to by 44 of the claimants in December 1915 with $500,000 set aside for the American claimants, 50,000 for the British and 114,000 to go towards interest and legal expenses. Is that cuz there were a lot more of the Americans or because they were the ones complaining? There's a lot more of the Americans in this lawsuit and it was a lawsuit that was 
filed in America. So it was primarily for American victims and survivors. There would also be a United States Senate inquiry into the sinking of the Titanic, as well as a British wreck commissioner's inquiry. So let's dive into the Senate inquiry first. Yeah, because there's never been a time when the U.S. Senate looked into something and had dissatisfying answers. <laughs> yeah. Something about a Warren report? No, no, no. Let's move on. Let's let's stay focused. Something about a, an official 9-11 commission report? Oh, oh, let's stay focused, Carrie. <laughs> Republican Senator William Alden Smith of Michigan took the news of the Titanic disaster as an opportunity to establish an inquiry into investigating marine safety issues, something that obviously had been desperately needed even before the sinking forced their hands. Smith, who has no relation to Captain Smith, um, he previously investigated railroad safety issues, sponsoring many of the operating regulations passed by Congress to govern the American rail industry. So he was in the unique position in government to understand that swift action was required in response to the tragedy, especially since soon many of the surviving passengers and crew would disperse and return home. Initially, he tried to contact sitting U.S. President William Howard Taft about his interests in an inquiry. And he was sitting in a bathtub that he was stuck in. <laughs> he was stuck. <laughs> he was stupid. Um, but he was told by the president's secretary that no action was intended to be taken because William Howard Taft never took action. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just a general statement. <laughs> But Smith wasn't taking no for an answer. So on April 17th, 1912, before the Carpathia even reached shore, he addressed the Senate and proposed a solution to grant the Committee on Commerce powers to establish a hearing to investigate the sinking. The resolution passed and Smith was made chair of a Committee on Commerce subcommittee to carry out the intended hearings. Uh, how long did the Carpathia take to get to the U.S.? Three days from the vague sinking site to New York. Well, it's a lot faster than we get anything done these days. Kate. Oh, I throw that out there a little later in this testimony. <laughs> um, so after this subcommittee was formed, Smith was finally able to meet with Taft, who himself had just received the sad news that his friend and military advisor, Archibald Butt, had died in the disaster. <laughs> Yeah, it's unfortunate. N not Mr. Butt. Yeah, I, again, we don't we, we never make fun of victims, but God, his name's Butt. It's, it's too bad. It's I got worse news for you. It's all I'm going to call our dog from now on. A little Archibald Butt. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps due to his personal connection to the tragedy, Taft joined with Smith to make arrangements for the inquiry, including a naval escort for the Carpathia to ensure no one left the ship before it docked. And uh, this was presumably to make certain that they would be able to record survivor testimonies as soon as possible. That same afternoon, Smith and other officials traveled to New York to meet the Carpathia and serve subpoenas to J. Bruce Ismay, who they knew by that time to have survived, and other officers and crew to require they remain in the U.S. and give testimony at the inquiry. The hearings began on April 19th, again, just like right, like soon after, uh, in New York and later moved to Washington, D.C. Seven senators, including Smith as chair, served on the committee and questioned witnesses, and it was a mix of Republican and Democrat. During the 18 days the hearings lasted, over 80 witnesses gave testimony, including surviving passengers and crew and those on other ships in the area. 
Mr. Ismay, <laughs> is it true that you sat down in that boat and lowered it into the water? Mm-hmm. Of particular interest to the senators was the handling of the ice warnings and ship speed, the inadequate but legal number of lifeboats, distress calls to other ships, and how the evacuation of the Titanic was run. The final report was presented to the Senate on May 28th, which apparently was the last time anything was done quickly in the U.S. government. There it is. Uh, So here are the report's key findings. The lack of emergency preparations had left the Titanic's passengers and crew, quote, in a state of absolute unpreparedness, and the evacuation was not handled well. In the, Is that a direct quote? Well, in their observations, quote, no general alarm was given, no ship's officers formally assembled, no orderly routine was attempted or organized system of safety begun. So in so many words, yeah. All in all, pretty poor behavior. Yeah. Titanic's safety and life-saving equipment had not been properly tested, though the lack of lifeboats was primarily the fault of the British Board of Trade, quote, to whose laxity of regulation and hasty inspection the world is largely indebted for this awful tragedy. Whew, shade. I mean, we just got into the 20th century. We still do love taking a pot shot at the British. Absolutely. The captain of the Titanic, Edward Smith, had shown, quote, an indifference to danger that was one of the direct and contributing causes of this unnecessary tragedy. So they are putting blame on him. Though in their further opinion, despite him not actually ordering Captain Smith to increase speed, the presence of J. Bruce Ismay on board may have influenced the captain's decision to increase the speed. Because he, he was like, felt like the boss was over his shoulder. Got impressed, daddy. Mm-hmm. The SS Californian had been, quote, much nearer to Titanic than the captain is willing to admit. And the British government should take drastic action against them. And uh, lastly, though they felt third class passengers had not been prevented from reaching the lifeboats, in many cases they had not realized or had not been informed of the danger until it was too late. That and the uh, closed gates and men with guns. Well, there weren't any men with guns, but that, that's how the, the movie portrays it. But all in all, though, the report found many faults with choices made by the builders and owners of Titanic, along with the officers and crew and the British Board of Trade and Shipping Industry as a whole. International Mercantile Marine and the White Star Line was not found negligent under existing maritime laws, and the disaster could thus only be categorized as an act of God. Senator Smith's recommendations for new regulations on passenger ships uh, using American ports included that ships should slow down when entering known ice drift areas and post extra lookouts. Um, They should have navigational messages be brought promptly to the bridge. And obviously, there should be enough lifeboats to carry all of those on board. Oh, Jesus. Next, you're going to tell me I, I should drive sober. <laughs> There's also He also said that rockets should only be fired at sea as distress signals. And you might remember from last episode, some of the people on the Californian tried to be like, oh, we thought we were, they were saying hi. So now, you only fire rockets when things are bad. White rockets, baby. Company rockets. White rockets at night. Sailors take warning? Is that how that goes? No, I think it's wireless operator goes to sleep. (laughs) Smith also proposed three pieces of legislation, a joint resolution with the House of Representatives to award a Congressional Gold Medal to Captain Rostron of the Carpathia, 
a bill to reevaluate existing maritime legislation. And, and a- the opposite of the, uh, the uh, whatever the opposite of a medal is for the <laughs> captain of the California. Just a steaming piece of shit in a bag on his doorstep. Uh, and lastly, a, a joint resolution to establish a commission to inquire into the laws and regulations on the construction and equipment of maritime vessels. The British, however, responded mockingly to Smith in particular, heavily criticizing him for his style of questioning and for seemingly insulting the British shipping industry as a whole. As Wikipedia so astutely put it, quote, the press mocked Smith relentlessly as a fool, an ignoramus, and an ass. <laughs> Why? Because he said the boat should have been, like, safer? Yeah. I mean, I don't know, Brits. Like, maybe you should have used that passionate energy to prevent 1,500 people dying a preventable death rather than getting all flustered that someone called you out on it. It's their way. I mean, there was a lot of uh, bitchy cartoons. Yeah, no, I meant tabloid there was journalism. A, there was a song written about him? Yeah, tabloid journalism. <laughs> Speaking of the Brits, let's talk about the British Wreck Commissioner's own inquiry into the Titanic disaster. These hearings were overseen by High Court Judge Lord Mercy. Who's Lord Mercy? And it took place from May 2nd to July 3rd, 1912. In this inquiry, too, many officials and witnesses were interviewed, along with experts in marine law and shipping, among others. But the only passengers to testify here were Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon and his wife, Lucy. In the final report, it was concluded that the Titanic's sinking was solely the result of hitting an iceberg. Well, okay. Yeah, we knew that part. (laughs) But it wasn't due to any inherent flaws with the ship's construction. This collision was found to be brought about by the excessive speed at which the Titanic was traveling, which again, doy. There were also the other obvious reactions. There weren't enough lifeboats. They hadn't been properly filled. The Californian should and could have pushed through the ice to the open water without serious risk to come to the assistance of the Titanic. And quote, had she done so, she might have saved many, if not all of the lives that were lost. The Board of Trade's representative suggested to Lord Mercy Mm -hmm. that a formal inquiry should be held into Captain Lord of the Californian's competency to continue as master of a British ship. That's kind of the opposite of a medal. (laughs) But no action was taken against him due to legal technicalities. Mm. The Board of Trade was also criticized for its inadequate regulations, and it was made clear to the Duff Gordons that apparently they should have acted more tactfully. Who, Cosmo? (laughs) Yeah. The very same. However, unlike the American inquest, the Mercy Report did not condemn the failures of the Board of Trade, the White Star Line, or Titanic's captain, Edward Smith, concluding that he particularly had merely done, quote, only that which other skilled men would have done in the same position. The report would, however, lead to changes in safety practices as a response to the disaster. Meanwhile, as many of the deceased as possible were retrieved by the White Star Line, eventually totaling 333 recovered victims. Each ship left on the expedition with embalming supplies, undertakers, and clergy. Now, how do you... Are are they at the bottom? No, these would be people that were floating, many of them still in life jackets. But uh, so many bodies were found by the C.S. Mackay Bennett, ship that they ran out of embalming items so they had to 
They made this gross decision, uh, the Captain Lardner of the Mackie Bennett and the Undertakers. They decided to preserve only the bodies of first-class passengers, oh. justifying their decision by the need to visually identify wealthy men to resolve any disputes over large estates. It's like, whatever, guys. Like <laughs> A second trip wasn't like a one, one, maybe one possibility? Right. As a result of this choice, many third-class passengers and crew were buried at sea, Yet another insult in the name of classism. Captain Lardner identified many of those buried at sea as crew members by their clothing and stated that as a mariner, he himself would have been contented to be buried at sea. But dude, this isn't about you. You don't know what they would have wanted. Bit ridiculous. The bodies that could be transported were to Halifax, the closest city with direct rail and steamship connections, and a large temporary morgue was set up in a curling rink for North was set up in a curling rink, which is kind of the most Canadian-esque thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, um I mean it could have been could have been under the hockey ice, I guess. <laughs> and uh, this was so North American-based relatives could come and attempt to identify their loved ones. Unidentified victims that were not taken home to be buried were buried under the numbers um, based on the order in which their bodies were discovered, with the majority being buried across three local cemeteries in the Halifax area. The last body to be found was steward James McGrady, and he was found by a Newfoundland sealing vessel on May 22nd. And around that time, ships started noticing that the um, the life jackets were starting to degrade, which means that they would be starting to sink and they didn't expect to be finding many or any more bodies after this. Pretty sure also around that time we stopped sending ships out to kill seals for their oil. Yeah, yeah, which is good. After the break, we'll take the adventure of a lifetime as Dr. Bob Ballard and co. search for the Titanic's wreck on the bottom of the ocean and put on our tinfoil hats to chat conspiracy theories and if the Titanic ever even sank at all. Oh, this is my favorite. Ghost ship territory. Ooh. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, hi True Crime, Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest. We'll read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Welcome back. When last we left you, a, I believe a U.S. Senate committee and also a, a British government committee had uh, decreed the sinking of the Titanic an act of God mm -hmm. without fault on the part of the White Star Line or the sh uh, 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 shipping industry? No, I think, I think they at least found existential fault, but not legal fault. And so I assume, Carrie, that that was the end of finger pointing and blame in the, in the story of the Titanic, and then this was a settled issue that never came up again. Oh, you sweet summer child. 
Well, we'll start with um, we'll start with immediately following the sinking. Uh, right after April fifteenth, nineteen twelve, proposals began to flood in to try and salvage the Titanic from the bottom of the ocean, despite the exact location and condition being pretty much unknown. Uh, the lifeboats had left the immediate area before being picked up by the Carpathia, so it could be within like a, a radius of at least 20 miles. Now, obviously, Carrie, spoiler alert, we, we know the Titanic's still at the bottom of the ocean. Um, w- how much would it cost to pull it up, and why would you care to do that? A ton. A ton it would cost. In fact, families of several wealthy victims of the disaster, the Guggenheims, Astors, and Wideners, formed a consortium and contracted the Merritt and Chapman Derrick and Wrecking Company to raise the Titanic um, because they were rich enough to, to come up with something like that. Like, we don't need to start a museum. <laughs> uh, but the project was soon abandoned as being impractical considering the, dis- the divers could not go nearly as deep as what would have been required. The ocean floor in the area the Titanic was lost was about 12,500 feet deep, which is over two miles and almost four meters below the ocean surface. That translates to a pressure of over 6,000 pounds per square inch, a.k.a. the kind of pressure that would make a diver's head pop like an old grape. Huh, I guess we should wait until Jim Cameron wants to make a movie about this. <laughs> well, pretty close. There also wasn't advanced submarine tech at the time, and with World War II breaking out, a salvage just wasn't a priority after a while. But that really was the main thing. It was bringing the Titanic up was the idea. Now, they didn't really know that it had broken in half on the way down, which would have made bringing it up nigh impossible. They didn't really know that till they got to the wreck eventually. Now, there were many considerations to try and salvage it. Um, It was considered to maybe drop a bunch of dynamite on the wreck to dislodge bodies and hopefully make them float to the surface. But thankfully, this destructive proposition was also abandoned. Yeah, great. So you just have arms and heads and stuff floating up? Like, again, to what end? To what end? The years passed and salvage proposals continued to come in, most notably in the 60s and 70s when technology had developed quite a bit further. The Titanic Salvage Company was established to attempt to raise the wreck, the idea being it could be like a floating museum. Uh, one theory that they had would was that they could maybe use nylon balloons attached to her hull to kind of float her to the surface. How many balloons? <laughs> Isn't it like a million tons of metal? Yeah, well, this too was abandoned when it was determined that it would take 10 years to generate just enough gas to inflate the balloons enough to overcome the massive water pressure. Sure, you got to start mining helium off the moon. Yeah, well, I mean, you're not even, it's not even the weight of the Titanic. It's the 6,000 pounds per square inch of pressure that you're also working against so like i don't know get a calculator dude like duh duh that's not gonna work another hold on i've got a buddy who's a clown (laughs) he's got like a ton of those air tanks Another proposal called for 180,000 tons of molten Vaseline, or maybe wax, to be pumped into the wreck and lift it to the surface. Yet another hypothesized that the ship could be filled with tons and tons of ping pong balls to float it up. 
not really taking into account that the teeny balls would be crushed even easier than a humid head at that depth. Yeah. Like, again, duh. Like, I'm not good at math or science. I know a ping pong ball is not going to survive two miles in the ocean. And you know every time you ask someone to pick some up for a party, they always come with the shitty ones with a hole (sighs) in the side. Yeah. Exactly. You get it. The idea of salvaging Titanic became such a part of public consciousness that Clive Cussler himself wrote a thriller about the possibility in 1976 called Raise the Titanic! Exclamation point. I bet that holds up great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and in it, Cussler's hero, Dirk Pitt, repairs the holes in the Titanic's hull, pumps it full of compressed air, and succeeds in making it leap out of the waves like a modern submarine blowing its ballast tanks. Unfortunately, it wasn't a proposition that was actually physically possible. Thus came along Dr. Robert Ballard, who incidentally authored a children's book named Finding the Titanic that I got out of a scholastic magazine when I was a kid and undoubtedly contributed to my Titanic mania. I must have read his book cover to cover hundreds of times, fascinated by the photos and his journey to find the greatest shipwreck of all time. Yeah, and we both went to elementary school at a time when... Probably fueled by the movie. Absolutely fueled release. by the movie, yeah. Ton of Bob Ballard talk in science class. Oh, like, yeah. We went and saw the little Alvin sub when it was at the Mystic Aquarium. We'd, we'd, we'd... I, I knew people who worked with him at Mystic and stuff uh, as like interns and things like that. They said he was a lovely man, feel which like is great we, to hear. feel like we spent years of elementary science just talking about Titanic. That's how I it... mean, if we actually had, I would have liked science a lot more. <laughs> Ballard, hailing from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, had long been interested in finding the Titanic. Of course, you're an oceanographer. This is like the greatest shipwreck of all time. Um, So he was able to court sympathetic financial backers in the 70s to form a company and try to find and explore the Titanic. Ballard made his first attempt to find the final resting place of the ship in October 1977 using a modified ship generally used for drilling and uh, its sonar capabilities. Unfortunately, a drilling pipe broke during the expedition, sending over $2.5 million in today's money worth of equipment plunging to the depths of the ocean, rendering the initial expedition a failure. And again, I can't emphasize enough We really didn't know where exactly it was. The lifeboats may have drifted as much as four to five miles away from the site by the time they were picked up. And they were in different directions, too. So, again, if you're talking about, you know, you have a point in the middle of where they could have drifted to, that's like at least five miles in all directions. And it's also two miles underneath the water. Things drift. It's crazy. Plus, it's been decades. It's like trying to find where D.B. Cooper came down. Yeah, it's a literal needle in a haystack. Expeditions by oil man Jack Grimm attempted to locate the wreck multiple times between 1980 and 1983 to no success. However, they were able to produce fairly detailed maps of the area in which the ship had sunk. Oil man Jack Grimm? You're not describing another (laughs) Clive Cussler novel? It does sound like that, or something from Dallas. Um... So Bob Ballard was newly inspired by these maps to give it another shot. Ballard devised new tech and search strategies to attempt the expedition, including a brand new remote-controlled deep-sea vehicle called the Argo. And this is what you were talking about, seeing the little robot, little robot vehicle. It wasn't called, there there wasn't a thing called Alvin also? Alvin, I I think that might have been James Cameron. Cameron. 
Jim Cameron. Like, he's your buddy. Well, I know he had Jake and Elwood. Bob De Niro. Um, the Argo had a robot, Jason, tethered to it that would be able to roam the sea floor, take close-up images, and gather specimens to bring back to the surface. Because of its possible military applications, the United States Navy agreed to sponsor the development of the Argo, which of course was costing millions of dollars, on condition that it was to be used to carry out a number of programs, many of which are still classified for the Navy. So Ballard and his team were commissioned by the Navy to carry out a month-long expedition every year for four years to keep the Argo in good working condition with the agreement that the vehicle could be used to explore the wreckage should it be found. And the scratch my back, I scratch yours. Yeah, and one of those classified projects is putting a bunch of balloons on the Titanic <laughs> to raise it. Or a bunch of Vaseline. Ballard decided that moving forward, he would look for the debris field of the Titanic instead, using the items that had been strewn across the ocean floor to help guide to the final resting place of the ship. So it's a much bigger radius that you're looking at because things drift all over. But if you find one thing, it's more likely you'll find another. Several expeditions in, and after much fruitless searching, pieces of debris did indeed begin to appear on the visuals the morning of September 1st, 1985. One of these items was identified as a boiler identical to those in image of the ship's building in 1911. The following day, the main part of the wreck was finally found, and Argo sent back the first pictures of the Titanic taken since her sinking 73 years before. And the incredible discovery made headlines around the world, making Ballard an oceanographic superstar. An expedition mounted by Infraramer, that's a, that's a big acronym, and a collection of American investors made 32 dives to the Titanic in 1987, controversially bringing back more than 1,800 items from the wreck. This included plates, luggage, personal items, other expeditions recovered the bell rung on the crow's nest to warn of the iceberg ahead, a piece of sheet music that had somehow survived for the song Put Your Arms Around Me, Honey, uh, which was used by the ill-fated musicians on the voyage, and one of the famous bronze cherub statues that you may recognize from the Titanic film. It was a decoration from the upper landing of the Titanic's grand staircase. Many expeditions have gone to the wreckage over the years, sometimes bringing back items, sometimes only making the descent to learn more about the wreck and the sea creatures that have made it their home. And I think the Artifact Exposition is actually in New York City right now, and I would love to go see it. Like like at a museum in New York right now, so. you can go see the picture of Kate Winslet nude or whatever? <laughs> uh, plates and stuff. Yeah, I think, it, I think there's some, at least, in New York. And King Tut's coming around, too. So, that's great. We, well, we gotta go see Tut, but that's for another day. <laughs> Multiple documentaries of Titanic expeditions have been made in the years since, including the IMAX film Titanica in 1995 and the film Ghosts of the Abyss in 2003, directed by James Cameron. And speaking of old Jim, your old buddy... We'd be remiss if we didn't mention the most recent bit of Titanic mania, the release of Cameron's epic romance Titanic in 1997, which we talked about a bit at the top of episode 115. Yeah, it is. Um, it's the perfect film for you in a lot of ways, Carrie, because it's both a romance and like a big budget, turn your brain off popcorn disaster movie. Yeah, absolutely. I love a disaster movie and I love love. So why not? 
Cameron has stated over the years that his main objective in getting Titanic made was to have the opportunity to afford the dive to the wreck, which he did over 12 missions in 1995. Much of the dive footage used in the film was taken directly from Cameron's dives, and some of the real crew members were featured as crew in the film. Yeah, and I heard he's making these four additional Avatar <laughs> movies because it gets him free trips to Disney's Being Animal an alien? Kingdom. Oh, okay. Cameron made his last descent to Titanic in 2005, but tourist and scientist visits to the ship are still ongoing, with the wreck becoming... Uh, up for protection under the 2001 UNESCO Convention on the Protection of Underwater Cultural Heritage on April 14th, uh, 2012, which was the anniversary of the ship hitting the iceberg. The same month in 2012, Bob Ballard himself announced a plan to preserve the wreck of the Titanic by using deep sea robots to paint the wreck with anti-fouling paint to help keep the wreck in its current state for all time. Unfortunately, the wreck is deteriorating more and more severely with every year that passes with concerns that if we don't do anything, we only have 15 to 20 years left to study it before it's completely reclaimed by the ocean. Additionally, there's the consideration that the wreck is also essentially a massive grave site. And though not a ton of remains have been found over the years due to composition, um, some things have been found here and there. Um, as recently as 2001, a finger bone encircled by partial remains of a wedding ring was found concreted to the bottom of a soup tureen. Wow. That the, was re retrieved from the debris field. The bone lasted longer than the wedding ring. I wouldn't have called that. Yeah. And uh, it was returned to the seabed on the next dive. It's the reality of the Titanic as a burial site that makes some people respond negatively to salvage uh, of any wreckage or items from the wreck, with many preferring to leave it as is in testament to the victims of the tragedy. The final survivors of Titanic only passed away fairly recently. The last survivor to pass away with actual memories of the sinking was Lillian Asplund, who was five at the time and died in 2006 at age 99. The last of all was Milvina Dean, just two months old when the Titanic sank, fresh to the world. Hell of a start. Yeah. And she passed at age 97 in 2009, and her father died in the disaster. As a sweet addition to her story, the stars of the Titanic film, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, of course, made a contribution of $20,000 to her care in 2009 with James Cameron and My Heart Will Go On singer Celine Dion joining with contributions of $10,000 each. So this ensured Dean's care until her death later that year, which is nice. Titanic the film was re-released in 2012 to mark the 100th anniversary of the sinking. If she died later that year, did... Well, I mean, she still had to pay off the nursing home and stuff. It was basically so she didn't have to do it. She wasn't leaving de debts behind yes. for her kids and yes. stuff. Right, I didn't know if they would, you know, if Leo's going to try to get some of that money back. Uh, no, I, I think he's fine. Titanic the film was re-released in 2012 to mark the 100th anniversary of the sinking and will be again this February uh, to mark the 25th anniversary of the film's release. And I can't believe how old I am. My God. Um, yeah. Still needs an editor all these years later. <laughs> so, Sean, now we're pretty much up to date on Titanic history. But let's, let's get into the fun bits, the conspiracies. Let's go through a bit of a checklist, shall we? Yes, please. First, a popular theory is the Titanic was purposely sunk by none other than J.P. Morgan. The millionaire banker that we mentioned back in the first episode of this series was the financier of International Mercantile Marine Co. And thus, 
basically the owner of White Star Line and so the Titanic itself. Okay, so this is an insurance scam? Well, we're going to get to insurance, but as I mentioned, Morgan was supposed to be on the Titanic's maiden voyage in one of the two most deluxe suites, in fact, and I think they even made a bathtub fitted with like cigar holders just for him. So that's how certain they were that he was taking this voyage. What do they think this guy is, William H. Taft? (laughs) But he canceled at the last minute to remain in France. So why would someone so obsessed with money like J.P. Morgan take such a financial hit and let the Titanic go down on its first trip out? Well, some say he did it to kill off rival American millionaires John Jacob Astor, Isidore Strauss, and Benjamin Guggenheim, who all did perish in the sinking. Some feel that his last-minute change of plans is suspicious, and it is weird. And uh, apparently he took umbrage with their opposition to the creation of the Federal Reserve, which he was for. However, in reality, it doesn't appear that Astor and Guggenheim ever took a public position, either pro or con, for the Fed, and Strauss actually supported it. So he wasn't against it. Also, we don't really have a solid theory on how Morgan would have purposely got the ship to sink, although there are some whispers about the ship having the wrong signal flares. Um, Well, but still, it's a little bit of a, it's quite a gambit. You just take what you put on the wrong signal flares, and then you hope that they're going to go too fast, they're going to strike an iceberg, five compartments are going to flood. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to need the signal flares unless the ship starts sinking, so... And even with the few lifeboats on board, you might expect the richest three men on the ship to be among those who get off safely. There was even uh, mutterings of the possibility that Titanic's decks were electromagnetically sealed to trap passengers, which to me is slightly bonkers. Well, especially, yeah, so he can kill all those uh, third-class Irish? Like, what enemies does he have down there? So, okay, what else could it be? Um, who could have purposely done this? Well, then we get to the possibility that the Rothschild banking family, or like maybe the Jesuits, uh, were the ones responsible for the sinking. Oh, you, you brought up the Rothschilds, and I was like, oh, finally, the anti-Semitism is here. But then you went right into Jesuits. Well, that's just sort of thrown in there, but it's really the Rothschilds that people mention. But of course, as you mentioned, whenever we get to blaming the Rothschilds for evil deeds, which is a popular thing for believers in the Illuminati or New World Order to do, then of course we get to concerns about anti-Semitism, because they were Jewish. As discussed in the 2018 Washington Post article, fact-checking QAnon conspiracy theories, did J.P. Morgan sink the Titanic? (laughs) Oh, Q's been up on this? (laughs) Yeah. Quote, QAnon has embraced a centuries-old anti-Semitic trope about an international banking conspiracy claiming the Rothschild dynasty is funding an evil global, global plot. The Rothschild family founded banking houses across Europe in the early 1800s, and they have been a favorite target of conspiracy theorists ever since. Hundreds of unproved, bizarre, and anti-Semitic allegations have been leveled against the Rothschilds for centuries, with their list of supposed atrocities including controlling the world economy, bankrolling Adolf Hitler, plotting to kill Presidents Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, founding Israel, funding the Islamic State, inflicting financial distress on Asians, and most recently, messing with the weather. 
So uh, it might have been a situation with the Rothschilds trying doing trying to do the same thing and eliminate all these rich people, including Morgan, who they thought would be on it. It, it but, is, but they're just kind of thrown in there, you know, like Willie and Nelly. They're not really, they don't have a real good theory for it. It is so sneaky of the, uh, <laughs> of, of these, you know, evil Jewish overlords <laughs> to fund Nazis and the Islamic State. Yeah, it, it makes really total them, sense. It really gives them cover. In other deliberately suck, sunk theories, it may not have been J.P. Morgan, but someone who wanted the unsinkable ship at the bottom of the Atlantic. That someone, of course, was whoever was in on the possible inside job. In this theory, the Titanic was actually exchanged for its slightly older sister ship, the Olympic, on its maiden voyage to sink in an insurance scam by International Mercantile Marine. This ties with the theory that I mentioned before that Titanic never sank at all, because it was actually, unknowingly, the Olympic that hit the iceberg that fateful April night. Carrie, it's a question we love to ask around here. Qui bono? <laughs> well, Sean, the story goes that when the Olympic was damaged in September 1911 and returned to the Harland and Wolf shipping yard for, for repairs, which we mentioned. Yeah, uh, Smith was the captain on that, on that uh, journey. Yeah. Um, it was found to be too severely damaged to be profitable anymore. So it was switched with the Titanic to purposely ditch, ditch the Olympic and score its insurance money. I guess the lives of hundreds be damned. Uh, you know, who? what's the lives of 1,500 people for insurance for a boat, I guess? Guys, if you're going to ditch the boat for the insurance, you still couldn't put the lifeboats on? <laughs> However, as J. Kent Lawson notes in Conspiracies at Sea, the Titanic's insurance payout wasn't enough to cover the Olympics loss. So if that was the plan, it was a bad one. Not to mention, like, how would you just switch two massive ships without tons of people, at least the builders, finding out. You can't just go, whoop, swapsies. Even if you're repainting the outside to say Titanic instead of Olympic, someone's going to see. Well, no, of course. And now the Olympic was non-viable, but it did make most of this transatlantic voyage before they yeah. sank it on purpose or it finally sank just on its own. I, I don't think know. that would be purposeful. They would want to insure the insurance. But all right, all right. How about a mummy's curse? Okay, now we're finally starting to make sense. Mm-hmm. Tut's tomb isn't the only place vulnerable to a cursed sarcophagus. Apparently, the Titanic went to its watery grave with a cursed mummy in its cargo hold. Here's how Snopes recounts the story, and this is quite long. I really want there to actually be a mummy in the cargo hold of the Titanic. Quote, of all tales of the supernatural, this one is perhaps the best documented, the most disturbing, and the most difficult to explain. Now, this isn't Snopes writing this. This is them reprinting what I assume is like a chain email or something. The princess of Amun-Ra lived some 1,500 years before Christ. When she died, she was laid in an ornate wooden coffin and buried deep in a vault at Luxor on the banks of the Nile. In the late 1890s, four rich young Englishmen visiting the excavations at Luxor were invited to buy an exquisitely fashioned mummy case containing the remains of Princess of Amun-Ra. They drew lots. The man who won paid several thousand pounds and had the coffin taken to his hotel, where I don't know what he, I don't want to know what he did with it. Uh, a few hours later, he was seen walking out towards the desert. He never returned. The next day, one of the remaining three men was shot by an Egyptian servant, accidentally. 
His arm was so severely wounded, it had to be amputated. The third man in the foursome found on his return home that the bank holding his entire savings had failed. The fourth guy, which says the fourth guy, (laughs) suffered a severe illness, lost his job, and was reduced to selling matches in the street. I'm reminded so much of the Dudley Town legends. Yes. From episode one or two. Yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, the coffin reached England, causing other misfortunes along the way, where it was bought by a London businessman. After three of his family members had been injured in a road accident and his house damaged by fire, the businessman donated it to the British Museum. This also sounds kind of like some of the um, cursed jewelry stories. It, it also sounds very much like, like the King Tut. common <laughs> yeah. story, yeah. As the coffin was being unloaded from a truck in the museum courtyard, the truck suddenly went into reverse and trapped a passerby. Then, as the casket was being lifted up the stairs by two workmen, one fell and broke his leg. The other, apparently in perfect health, died unaccountably two days later. I would rather have the broken leg, I guess. Yeah, but yes. Like, yeah, me too. Why? I would be pissed if I was the other guy. Like, I have to die, but the other guy only gets a broken leg? Well, it sounds like he went pretty quick, so Mm. I don't think he had time. Once the princess was installed in the Egyptian room, trouble really started. The museum's night watchmen frequently heard frantic hammering and sobbing from the coffin. Other exhibits in the room were also often hurled about at night. One watchman died on duty, making the other watchmen wanting to quit. Cleaners refused to go near the princess, too. Making the other watchmen wanting to quit? It's not very well written. It's like a chain email. When a visitor derisively flicked a dust cloth at the face painted on the coffin, his child died of measles soon afterwards. Mm. Finally, the authorities had the mummy carried down to the basement, figuring it could not do any harm down there. Within a week, one of the helpers was seriously ill, and the supervisor of the move was found dead at his desk. Mm. By now, the papers have had heard of it. A journalist photographer took a picture of the mummy case, and when he developed it, the painting on the coffin was of a horrifying human face. (laughs) The photographer was said to have gone home then, locked his bedroom door, and shot himself. (laughs) This is a story written by a 12-year-old boy. This is a creepypasta. This is, you wrote this when you were in sixth grade. I think my grammar would be better. Soon afterwards, the museum sold the mummy to a private collector. After continual misfortune and deaths, parentheses, the owner banished it to the attic. A well-known authority on the occult, Madame Helena Blavatsky. Oh my God, she's back. She visited the premises. Upon entry, she was seized with a shivering fit and searched the house for the source of an evil influence of incredible intensity. She finally came to the attic and found the mummy case. Can you exorcise this evil spirit? Asked the owner. She responded, There's no such thing as exorcism. Evil remains evil forever. Nothing can be done about it. I implore you to get rid of this evil as soon as possible. I feel like she was German or something, but I feel like her voice is that. Even this whole time she was like itching and coughing for her various (laughs) hideous ailments. Mm Mm-hmm. But no British museum would take the mummy. The fact that almost 20 people had met with misfortune, disaster, or death from handling the casket in barely 10 years was not well known. Deanna, few had to meet with Helena Blavatsky. (laughs) Which is worse. Eventually, a hard-headed American archaeologist who dismissed the happenings as quirks of circumstance paid a handsome price for the mummy and arranged for its removal to New York. 
in April 1912, here she is, the new owner, the new owner escorted its treasure aboard a sparkling new White Star liner about to make its maiden voyage to New York. On the night of April 14th, amid scenes of unprecedented horror, the Princess of Amun-Ra accompanied 1,500 passengers to their deaths at the bottom of the Atlantic. And we end with the mic drop here. The name of the ship was, of course, the Titanic. Uh, Is there any truth at all to this story? Was there a mummy on the Titanic? Well, it's a nice, long story with a lot of details. So something must be true, right? (laughs) I'm sad to report that this account is pretty inaccurate and probably from an old chain email. Um, First of all, Madame Blavatsky died in 1891, making it unlikely she was there making grim predictions after the mummy mummy was supposedly purchased in the late 1890s. Well, in spirit. (laughs) Also, the mummy to which the story refers is really just a coffin lid of the priestess of Amun, And it's never left the British Museum and actually remains there to this day. So I probably saw it there as a kid. Um, Okay. So is it really 1,500 years old? I'm I'm sure it's pretty old. It, it's it's for a priestess. Yeah, but from it's, Egypt. Well, it's just interesting. Fifteen hundred years uh, BC is around when Akhenaten threw out the worship of of Amun Ra uh, for for the Aten. Sure, I don't think it has anything to do with the Titanic. Though. No, I don't think so. But it's interesting. <laughs> and I'm sorry to break your heart, Sean. But in 1985, president of the National Titanic Historical Society, Charles Haas, gained access to the ship's cargo manifest. And sadly, not a single mummy was listed. So if a mummy did go down with the ship, it was snuck on there. And they, it's probably hard to sneak a mummy on a boat. They didn't have the decency to, like, they had a lot of cargo space. They didn't bring one mummy? No, they brought a car, but no mummy. I mean, I'm not happy it sunk, but... <laughs> sank? But... You know, bring a mummy. <laughs> Finally, some theorize that the Titanic was actually torpedoed by a German U-boat causing the sinking. This probably stems from this actually happening in 1915 when a U-boat attacked the RMS Lusitania. We talked about that in our first episode. You mentioned Lusitania. And oh, I the said, first episode of the Titanic series. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, didn't that get uh, sunk by a German U-boat? Right. So could a German sub have escalated pre-World War I tensions by sinking the most famous ship in the world? Unlikely. I don't think they started going after American ships until like the second year of the war. Yeah, probably not. Though several witnesses in the Senate inquiry stated they felt no impact when the supposed collision occurred, but reported hearing something like explosions deep in the bowels of the Titanic after it scraped the iceberg. So it's very much like people saying that they heard explosions in the Twin Towers. You know, but in the case of the Lusitania, the U-boat attack caused the ship to sink in just 18 minutes, whereas the Titanic took nearly three hours to sink. So one would imagine that a similar bombing would cause a similar quick sink time. It could have been worse, a worse U-boat. I mean, yeah, it would have been a few years worse, at least. There are a couple other strange things attached to the story of the Titanic, but they're not exactly conspiracy theories. One is that a young woman named Violet Jessup became known as the Queen of Sinking Ships or Miss Unsinkable because she survived the sinking of both the Titanic and her sister ship, the Britannic, in 1916, which is a whole other story. She was also on the Olympic when it collided with the HMS Hawk in 1911. 
Um, so she's she's an interesting figure. She's she's just very lucky slash very unlucky. Or a serial sinker of ocean liners. <laughs> so maybe worth a Patreon uh, minisode. Similarly, fireman and stoker Arthur John Priest survived two major collisions, the Olympic and RMS Asturias, and four ship sinkings, including the Titanic, the HMS Alcantara, the Britannic, and the SS Donegal. Well, this is like that guy who has been struck by lightning like 76 times. Is he lucky or is he unlucky? Exactly. So he's gained the nickname, the Unsinkable Stoker. We'll leave off uh, with a particularly strange connection to the Titanic. Sean, have you ever heard of the novel Futility, The Wreck of the Titan by Morgan Robertson? No. Well, that's not surprising. But Futility was first published in 1898 before the Titanic itself was even conceptualized. However, there are a series of strange similarities between the fictional ship in the novella and the real Titanic. For starters, the fictional ship is called the Titan. It sinks after wrecking on an iceberg in April in the North Atlantic, and there are not enough lifeboats to save all the passengers. Also, the Titan and Titanic were similar in size and speed, something within like 100 feet. Uh, Like, the measurements were so exact. After the Titanic disaster, Robertson was credited with precognition and clairvoyance, which he had to come out and deny, which I think is very funny. Uh, Some people think that Robertson was able to kind of predict this kind of tragedy happening because he had extensive knowledge of shipbuilding and maritime trends and presumably saw the writing on the wall about a terrible disaster being inevitable. Uh, But it's still pretty weird that the the name of the ship is so close. Yeah, I mean, it, it just means big. Yeah, but I mean... It's a specific big, you know, they had Olympic, they had gigantic, they had Britannic, you know, those were other boats. He could have picked any of those names, but he didn't. He picked Titan. Yeah, but the dimensions being very similar, Titanic was kind of at the limits of people's imagination of what an ocean liner could be. Well, again, he was very knowledgeable in that area. So maybe he just kind of made some assumptions. Called it. And and we know that they didn't think of lifeboats as actually being for... Saving people's lives, essentially. So probably lots of ships didn't have enough boats. Yeah, so he probably just predicted that's bound to happen. Of course, to capitalize on the sinking, Futility was re-released in 1912 under the name Wreck of the Titan, and with some edits made to the new edition to make it even closer to the real Titanic story. So there it is, Sean, the story as full as I can get it about the Titanic from its building to its sinking to its discovery on the ocean floor and mysteries and fascinations still surrounding it today. Did any of the conspiracy theories particularly strike your interest? Uh, yeah, sure. They were all interesting. I, the mummy's curse is obviously the best. Obviously. I'm a little surprised maybe even a little disappointed that um, UFOs have not come up once. It, it feels like an area where... Uh, there Listen, would I'm be... sure if I searched Titanic UFOs conspiracy or whatever on Google, something would come up. Well, that's homework for our listener or <laughs> maybe a potential Patreon uh, minisode. Oh, God. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that Titanic was a horrible... You know, it's an Icarus. It's the result of horrible uh, mistakes and hubris and, mm-hmm. and overpride. And, um, boy, does it make me feel better about air travel. Well, at least that makes one of us. 
Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. It's our annual yearly predictions roundup. What is 2023 going to bring us, according to clairvoyance anyway? Let's begin with the big boy, Nostradamus. The 15th century astrologer is always a barrel of laughs and is credited with predicting the rise of Hitler and the fall of the Twin Towers. And his own death, if you recall our famous last words episode. Mm-hmm. We need to keep in mind that his prophecies, published in the 1555 book Les Prophéties, were not specifically dated, uh, and they're pretty generic poems, but Prophéties is divided into 10 sets of 100 quatrains, with each of the four-line verses supposedly alluding to events uh, expected for every year for the next 2,000 years, and each chunk kind of corresponds to each year. I don't know. So what does he say 2023 has in store for the world? Here's what we have to work with. Um, one of the little poems goes, From the celestial fire on the royal edifice, where when the light of Mars will go out, seven months great war, people dead through evil, ruin, Evro the king will not fail. So I didn't say they were good poems. <laughs> you, you said they were poems, though, and I'm not sure if the definition applies. <laughs> Some have interpreted parts of this to be about the escalation of the ongoing Russia-Ukraine conflict, resulting in a World War III lasting for seven months, and obviously resulting in many deaths. Sure, but Vladimir Putin's going to die, right? What was that about Mars at the beginning? Uh, the light of Mars will go out. Some, yeah. some people think that this is about those attempting to colonize Mars and things going very badly for them. But I would love it to not be about that and to be about Putin dying. Yeah, well, it's because then it goes on to talk about the war in Ukraine. So it's like he's the, the god of war. He's the one that kind of started this thing and his light's going to go out. Uh, I and think then we have the war? Because when the light of Mars will go out, seven months great war people dead through evil yeah new russian revolution it's, mm. it's gonna be it's gonna be ugly there could also be a fire at buckingham palace or a meteor and uh, residents of the french city of rouen should probably keep an eye out because it's it's mentioned here <laughs> <laughs> sure sure here's another fun tidbit so high will the bushel of wheat rise that man will be eating his fellow man oh this one's about marijuana legalization <laughs> uh, and in this section, there's also predictions that the voice of the rare bird will be heard. So what can this be? Some think that maybe the cost of living crisis hitting many areas around the world could uh, result in some people resorting to cannibalism and desperation with uh, man eating his fellow man. I don't know what the rare bird is, though. It seems like people really want to go. And it's funny because when you look at the ones that 
he supposedly got right. It's like always pretty, pretty metaphorical. So, so it's oh yeah, the the nine eleven one was like, and the great steel beast will take down the tower. You know, I don't think it was even that explicit. But, but something about a bird, maybe. Yeah. So maybe the bird's a plane. Is it Superman? Oh, it's probably <laughs> Superman. Forget all the stuff I said. It was it was probably Superman. Quote: The dry earth will grow more parched, and there will be great floods when the rainbow is seen. So this seems self-explanatory. Drought, floods. We can never really have a happy medium, can we? But we can have a silver lining, apparently. A rainbow at the end. But uh, things are looking bleak from old Nostradamus. So let's check in with Baba Vanga, the blind mystic called the Nostradamus of the Balkans. She must be cheerful, right? Uh, She always has been in the past. (laughs) Despite her death in 1996, she left the world with a variety of predictions through the year 5079 when she stated the world will end. Two of her predictions for 2022 that we shared last year were correct, um, with her claims there would be intense bouts of floods coming true in Australia and warnings of a drought also playing out as it hit Italy with their worst water shortage since the 50s. So what does Baba Vanga have lined up for 2023? She reckons this year will be the one where bioweapons will be used more than ever, which is concerning considering some fears that Vladimir Putin will utilize the nerve agent Novochok in the coming days. Venga also warned that Earth may have to deal with terrible solar storms this year, which could knock out electrical grids, satellite communications, and even the internet. She's concerned about eugenics, believing parents of the future will be able to decide the skin color and characteristics of children. And uh, to me, that doesn't seem too outlandish because I'm sure that's something that will happen sooner rather than later. Parents can also already choose uh, genders and then things like that when it comes to um, implanting pregnancies. So. Yeah, but we, we were already predicting all that stuff when yeah, exactly. Baba Vanga was writing these <laughs> predictions. Yeah. Her final 2023 prediction revolves uh, (laughs) around a change in the Earth's orbit, potentially leading to a devastating shift in the environment. So that's great. I read something about the the Earth's core flipping. I feel like if that actually happened, we would know. Was it on TikTok? No. No, it was online. But I have to look into that. Yeah, please. (laughs) Last, we'll check in with the famed and self-titled Asperomancer, Jemima Packington, who we've discussed previously. Packington, known as Mystic Veg, claims that she can peer into the future by tossing a handful of asparagus spears in the air and interpreting how they land. It's like the E King. (laughs) Sorry, the E Ching. In 2022, she predicted that the year would see sadness for the royal family, check. More showbiz legends would die, check. I mean, you know. And Benedict Cumberbatch would be nominated for the Best Actor Oscar, check. But she didn't get him 100% correct. She predicted Croatia would win the World Cup when they actually finished third. And she also predicted that Cumberbatch's film Power of the Dog would win the best picture oscar i think it did get best director or something didn't it 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 took some major awards it did and it was nominated but uh coda won so what's up for 2023 according to desparagus 
Everything everywhere all at once, probably. (laughs) And smelly pee. Apparently, according to an interview in The Mirror, quote, the tips show that there will be another royal birth and King Charles's coronation will provide joyous moments and help unite the country during another turbulent year. All right, you've got two princes who are happily married and in their (laughs) 30s, so... Yeah, and also, that's not the only royal baby prediction I've seen, so... Maybe... Maybe. Meanwhile, food rationing will be considered in Britain and COVID variants will continue to spread. Also, ongoing strikes will cause unrest between people who are struggling and those who are better off, which, yeah, of course. Uh, And additional predictions include high profile political figures being exposed as corrupt. No specific ones, just the general idea that that will happen. Oh, let me guess. Powerful, (laughs) powerful (laughs) men's bad behavior will be revealed this year as well. (laughs) There will also be unexpected celebrity deaths and unexpected celebrity comings out as gay. And King Charles will remove several more royal titles. You know, I think we're past the most surprising celebrity come outs, don't you? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised by any, but maybe my grandma would be. I don't know. So hopefully we'll all still be here in 2024 and we'll check back in with you then to see what did and didn't, hopefully didn't, come to pass. And uh, I have a prediction, Sean. Shoot. I predict that Poe's eighth birthday on Friday will be lovely. Uh, I sure love, yeah, I can play this game. I, I, I predict we're having steak. I did buy steak today at Trader Joe's. Oh, it's the asparagus. I knew it. Baba Vanga. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number 203-666-5529. We'll be sharing some of those voicemails next week. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those already joining us on Patreon, including our top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Ira, Kate Pope, Haley, and our newest patron, Jamie Berg. Hi again, Jamie. Great to have you back this week. And we love you all. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.